0: Merry Christmas everyone, great to have you with us today. I'm wondering if you have one of these in your home, a nativity scene. Now, I actually don't have one, uh, but I did as a kid, and this one here belongs to Pastor Bobby and Kayla, and they allowed us to borrow it for the evening. Um, Nativity scenes often hold a lot of sentimental value and tell the story of the birth of Jesus. Now, people have been very creative in putting together nativity scenes over the years, If you go on the internet, you can see all kinds of crazy things. So here's just a picture, uh, a few pictures of a few of them. Uh, This one is a rubber ducky nativity. Uh, Next one is a a moose nativity because, you know, we all thought we needed that. Uh, Someone put a lot of thought into this next one, the hipster nativity, trying to put a a modern spin on it. Uh, For the patriotic folks, here's the Canadian nativity because clearly the manger was placed on a maple leaf. And uh, here's my favorite. This one's the meat nativity, (laughs) made completely of sausage and bacon. Um, Yeah, someone came up with that. Now, with all kinds of nativity scenes, uh, and probably the ones that you have in your home are, are not made of meat or rubber duckies, but there's similarities in how these things are put together, aren't they? I mean... The characters are, are relatively the same. Mary and Joseph are, of course, there. Uh, they are looking very serene, very peaceful. They're gazing down lovingly at their child, uh, w- which they should, of course. Uh, Mary never shows any indication that she just had a baby. Uh, they look pretty fresh, usually. Um, and then the baby's always there, either sleeping or happy, never crying in the nativity, even though Jesus was a human baby and would have cried, um, but he's always happy in these, in these scenes. The shepherds, there's usually a shepherd or two there, and for whatever reason, they've always decided to bring one or two of their sheep with them, not all of them uh, or not none of them. There's always one or two that the shepherds have brought with them. And then the wise men are there, of course, and they're looking all regal and royal, and they're bringing their gifts, and they're often on one knee like this, presenting their gifts. Uh, to to the baby Jesus. Sometimes there's an angel. Often there's farm animals around uh, because Jesus was born in a stable. Now, it's not really clear that Jesus was born in a barn with a bunch of farm animals around him. Uh, Often in the homes at at that time, there was a room out back connected to the house where animals would stay. And so uh, perhaps there were some animals there, perhaps there wasn't. But Jesus was placed in a manger, which was a feeding trough. And so that gives us the idea that there were probably animals present. It looks so peaceful in these nativity scenes. And peace is a theme that is proclaimed through the Christmas story. When we read the angels appearing to the shepherds, they say this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Or if we look at a prophecy that foretold of the coming of this child in Isaiah chapter 9, Ellen read this for us earlier. Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. So, this child was to bring peace, to institute peace, and this peace was to grow through time. But sometimes when I read the Christmas story and I look at these nativity scenes, I think, how peaceful was it really? Like, you read about the events that surround the birth of Jesus and it it seems a little chaotic. You've got Mary and Joseph who are going to Bethlehem for a census. This isn't where they were living And they're going there to give birth in this place where they don't live. Now, every movie I've seen about these events uh, portrays Mary as sitting on a donkey, nine months pregnant, having contractions, and still five miles away from Bethlehem. And will she get there in time? And the Bible doesn't really tell us that things were that tight. In fact, perhaps they were there for a few months before the birth of this child. But nonetheless, they were journeying somewhere to give birth, which isn't exactly how they probably would have imagined it. Uh, as we've said, they, the, the, the birth took place in, in this stable or some sort of room where animals would have, would have been. Jesus was put in a manger, the king of the universe coming down, being put in a manger. This isn't how they would have drawn it up, probably. And then you hear about uh, a, a person who wants Jesus to be dead soon after he's born. Now, this is a character you never find in the nativity scene. King Herod never appears. And so I thought we would include King Herod in this nativity scene. And this is the best character that, that I could think of to represent King Herod. Because King Herod was the Grinch that nearly stole Christmas. Like if there ever was a guy who should be the Grinch, it's, it's him. And so he's looking and saying, this, this child has been born. And uh, he he represents a threat to the throne. The wise men tell him, we're going to worship this newborn king. And Herod says, well, tell me where he is so I can go and worship him. Well, really, he wanted to go and and take him out. Once the wise men didn't report back, and Herod clued into that, he decided to issue a decree to kill all of the children two years and under in the, the little town of Bethlehem. Now, some scholars have looked at the size of what that town would have been and said probably 20 or 30 children lost their lives because King Herod had this this problem of holding on to power. And he was a vicious guy. He killed his own family members to keep his, his grasp on the throne. And yet Jesus was to bring peace. Jesus was to bring a peace that would only increase. But you look at the rest of his life, of course, and once he goes public with his ministry, he's actually oppressed, and people are plotting against him and eventually would kill him. He would torture him and crucify him. That doesn't really sound very peaceful. Then you look at the world today, and you think it's not really a peaceful place. Uh, There's a a World Peace Index, which measures the level of global peace every year. And this index found that between 2012 and 2017, there was a 10.2% increase in violence in the world. And in 2017, the economic impact of violence was $14.53 trillion. That's about $2,000 per person living on Earth. Hasn't been a very peaceful year. U2, in one of their songs, sings this Peace on Earth, hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So, what's it worth, this peace on Earth? So so what gives? How are we supposed to understand this peace on earth that Jesus was to bring? Well, a few thoughts. First of all, when the Bible talks about peace, it never envisions a trouble-free life. It never imagines that you'll simply come to Jesus and all your problems will disappear. Often when the Bible talks about peace, it does have an element to the end of violence and war to it. There's imagery in the Old Testament of of the weapons of war being burned or being melted down and being made into farming implements because there's no need for them anymore. And we recognize that part of the peace which Jesus will eventually establish will include this, this, uh, this peace when it comes to war and violence. But when the Bible talks about peace, it often refers to the peace that you and I need with God. In fact, that's the most pressing need that the Bible communicates to us is peace with God. And it communicates it this way because there is sin that lurks in our hearts and separates us from God. Romans three twenty three 23 say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Matthew, in, in Matthew 1, when Matthew's writing about the birth of Jesus, he, he says the angel came to Joseph and he said, Jesus is, is going to be born and he's going to save people from their sins. That's part of his purpose, to save people from their sins. God and sinners reconciled. This is the peace that Jesus came to bring. Now, Christmas can be a hard gift to accept on that note. You know, let's say that a loved one this Christmas got you a a gift, and it wasn't something that you'd asked for, it was a surprise, and and you unwrap it and you think, what could possibly be in here? This is so exciting. And, And you open it and you find a digital scale, a gym membership, and a dieting book. And you'd say, well, thanks. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, what is this person saying about me? What, what do they think about me? There's, a, there's almost a judgment that accompanies the gift. Christmas has a little bit of that feeling to it. Because if, if the problem is that sin has separated us from God, and Jesus comes into the world to save us, we also have to recognize that that means that I am unable to establish peace between myself and God. No matter how hard I try, I cannot do it. This this gap that exists between me and God because of sin, I I can't fix it. So Christmas comes with with this message that, that Jesus needed to intervene because I was powerless to do anything about it. Tim Keller says this, Society says that our problems come from the outside and solutions come from the inside. You know, all of my challenges are out there, and if I just apply myself, I'll be able to solve them. The gospel says the opposite, that my problems come from inside, and the solution comes from outside. And Jesus is that solution. The challenge is that there there is a little bit of King Herod in all of us. There's a little bit of King Herod in all of us. We want to claim the throne. And any challengers to the throne, we, we react against. You know, I've, I've seen this, I think, a little bit this year with lockdowns and restrictions on movement and all of that kind of a thing. And I, w- I want to be careful because I, I don't want to pretend to know other people's motives and, and why other people react the way they do. But I see a little bit of this in myself. And so I think that I've, I've also seen it in other people. I think one reason people react against lockdowns and just one reason, it, it boils down to this. You can't tell me what to do. Only I tell myself what to do. You can't tell me what to do and what not to do at Christmas time, or who I can see and who I can't see. I'm the boss of me. I make those decisions. You can't tell me what to do. And the challenge is is that when Jesus is in front of us and Jesus says, I can establish peace between you and God, there is a, a message with it that says, that means you need to get off the throne. And Jesus tells you what to do. There's a surrender and a humility and a repentance that acknowledges that I can't figure this out. But the good news is that when Jesus says, I get to sit on the throne, we know that Jesus is completely for us. He has our good at heart. He will lead us in the right way. Uh, Tim Keller writes this wonderful book called Hidden Christmas. He says, if in order to be at peace, we need to be in control, beholden to no one, then we'll constantly be afraid. Because we learn as life goes on that we're at the mercy of people and forces that we can neither predict nor manage. And this year's been a reminder of that more than any other. So peace, inner peace, peace between me and God, peace between you and God, comes after the inner conflict of repentance and humility, of kneeling down like the wise men before God and saying, before Jesus and saying, you have the perfect plan, not me. I need what you offer because I can't produce it on my own. And when we do that in humility and repentance, when we offer ourselves to God, we achieve, we experience that peace that Jesus offers. This peace which will increase. This peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. On whom does his favor rest? It's those who have surrendered themselves to him. So you can do that this Christmas if you've never done it before. You can admit your need for Jesus. You can admit your sin that separates you from God. You can admit that you cannot establish peace aside from him and invite him to be the Lord of your life. But here's the next part. Those who experience the peace of Jesus share it with others. You know, Isaiah said that the peace of Jesus would increase over time. How does it increase? It increases when those who have experienced pass it on. And so if you have experienced that peace with Jesus, this is the challenge that Christmas presents to you. To spread that peace. To continually get off the throne of your life and let Jesus be on it. So that you can spread his peace. So to quote Tim Keller one more time. Christmas means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, peace with God is available. And if you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everyone else. And the more people who embrace the gospel and do that, the better off the world is. Christmas, therefore, means the increase of peace, both with God and between people across the face of the world. So if you experience this peace of God, and if you have, how are you sharing it With others. That starts in your most closest relationships and extends into every area of your life. So, as we end with prayer, I invite you to to take stock of your own heart. How much peace are you experiencing? And I think that the answer to that is directly correlated to how much surrender are you offering to the King? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came into this earth to establish peace and that your peace increases as we as your followers go out and spread it around. Help us not to be like King Herod, grasping onto control in our lives. May we live with open hands, surrendered to you, that you might have your way with us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus.